Hey everyone, I'm Boomer Esiason, and I'm so delighted to have you join us here on our Game Time Podcast. Now, today's guest is the winningest head coach in women's college basketball history. In fact, you know, she has more career victories to her name than 344 of the country's 351 Division I programs. I am so thrilled to be joined by Stanford's Hall of Fame sideline guru, Tara Vanderveer. Coach, welcome to our Game Time Podcast. Thank you, Boomer. Pleasure to be here. All right, so you've been seeing wearing a big black fleece uh, <laughs> with the word T-Dog on the back of it. So how did you acquire that nickname, and do you like T-Dog? You know, um, one of our players, and I, I think it, I'm not sure who it was, but you know how, like, you kind of, you it's an affectionate term. You know, your dog is someone, you know, someone's your dog. And so T-Dog, with my name being Tara, uh, T-Dog became a nickname, and when... Um, when uh, our our team won a game and it was the record for the most wins in women's basketball, um, the hoodie, the fleece that they gave me, uh, comfy they call it. Um, mm -hmm. One of our players had had a comfy, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that. So they got one for me, and it was um, it was really it was a total surprise. It was really fun, and uh, you know it was uh, I, I wear it. I, I I put it on every morning when it's cold here in California. <laughs> You know, another one of your nicknames, Coach, is Video Vanderveer. Now, this is a testament to your endless hours of tape that you watch to prepare for opponents. Bill Belichick would love you for this. In fact, someone estimated that you've actually watched 35,000 hours of footage. Now, after crunching the numbers, I just wonder, is there any way to spend the equivalent of four years of your life any better than that? Uh you know, I, I love watching video. I love watching uh, our game film and our opponent's game film. Um, and it's become a lot easier with computer, obviously. You know, I, I, I have it on my um, my Trixie, my hard drive. And uh, I, I watch, I've probably watched more than that. Um, I probably am not honest with how much I watch, but I can, I can um, watch games on television. Like last night, I was watching the Warriors play and watching a video. So I don't know if that counts as two. <laughs> you know, Becky Hammond and Dawn Staley are among the names often bonded about when it comes to breaking the barrier as the first female head coach in the NBA. Have you ever thought about coaching a men's college or NBA team in your past? You know, I, I really never thought of that. And I know that um, there are opportunities now for women, and I think that's great. Um, you know, if if I was a young coach now, I think I would think about it. But um, I, I thoroughly enjoy coaching uh, women. Um, I'm you know, I'm not going to make a change now. Um, I'm kind of uh, on the back nine, so to speak, and I'm very happy uh, coaching the women I coach. But I have had several um, male players say, boy, you know, I wish you'd coach our team. And I think that that's the direction that things are going and that young men are respecting women. And, you know, there's uh, w men coach women all the time. That's not a big, big deal. But, um, you know, that, that women can coach men is uh, is coming. Your Stanford colleague, head football coach David Shaw, surprised everyone by announcing his retirement after a dozen seasons. What contributions did he bring to the farm? Uh, David is a, a most—he's the most incredible uh, human being. He—he's um, just a wonderful person. Um, br just a, a very bright. Uh, he helps us recruit. He's a great leader in our department. Um, I'm very sad to see him go, but I know it was, you know, something that he felt it was his time to do it. And uh, I know that, it, you know, we'll, we will miss him. Uh, and 
it's uh, finding someone that can do the job that he did will be very challenging. So we're talking with Tara Bondevere here on the Game Time podcast. And coach, you say that every year brings a new puzzle. How do you like this year's Stanford squad? I'm really excited. Uh, this team has uh, got some great pieces. Um, it's, I, I can't be that hard to put together. <laughs> you know, in November, you hosted top-ranked defending national champion South Carolina, and this is what I admire most about you. Why would you schedule such a tough contest so early in the season, and what did you learn from that 76-71 overtime loss? Well, Boomer, I think that uh, it's, it's in women's basketball, we really try to play great competition just to test ourselves uh, early in the season and try to learn about, you know, what we need to be doing better and what I learned in that game, and I think our team learned in that game, is that we can beat anyone, but you have to do the right things. And uh, we were winning the game for basically, you know, 40 minutes, but uh, we didn't, we weren't able to close the deal. And I think that we have to do a much better job down the stretch of executing offensively. We have a very young perimeter. Um, you know, we had a freshman point guard, um, some players that aren't as experienced, and we made mistakes that cost us the game going down the stretch. But um, I think we've learned a lot, and I think we've improved a lot, and we hope that we'll get another shot at them. Speaking of rivalries, were you as stunned as we all were when we heard that UCLA and USC were leaving the Pac-12 to go to the Big Ten? I was stunned. Um, I was, you know, really disappointed. Um, I know that uh, we're in a really uh, challenging time right now in athletics, in college athletics, but um, it's, uh, I don't know that it's totally played out yet, but, uh, you know, we're really disappointed. You know, I've, I've talked to many college coaches, both men and women's, about the NIL and everything that's going on in this world. How difficult is it to navigate that, Coach? Uh, right now, it is very difficult. Um, you know, I think that uh, it's not just the NIL, which I, I think NIL is a great thing for student-athletes when NIL is, uh, I think, done correctly or by in, in the way it was uh, planned. I think there's some unintended consequences of NIL being the collectives, uh, the use of uh, inducing players, you know, trying to uh, recruit players using uh, money, which was not the intention. Um, and also now the, the portal, uh, people basically poaching other players from other uh, programs uh, with the portal. So it's, uh, it's, I think it's a really crazy time and, and not a good time in college athletics. You know, you recently made headlines when you called out LSU gymnast Olivia Dunn's name, image, and likeness activities, which reportedly earned her more than a million dollars. So what prompted you to tell the New York Times that you consider this, quote, a step back for female athletes? Well, what I consider a step back is that female athletes are just valued for their ability to sell sex. I think it's her choice um, to do any kind of NIL deal she would like. So I'm not being critical of any athlete in their choice of how they want to do it. But if that is the only thing, then I think we have stepped back as a society, not recognizing the athletic ability of uh, women on the, you know, just the, you know, beyond the fact that they can wear a bathing suit. I think well said. We're just getting warmed up with Tara Vanderveer. We'll talk more about the genesis of our lifelong infatuation with a great game of basketball when game time continues right after this. Welcome back to Game Time, everyone. Tara Vanderbeer recalls that back in her fourth grade PE class, she did the three-player weave basketball drill and thought this was the coolest thing ever. 
That, she claims, is how she became hooked on hoops. And I'll tell you what, that is some story. Now, I heard that you read every library book on basketball, very similar to what Billie Jean King had told us about how she read every library book about tennis. Now, you got to watch Hall of Famer Calvin Murphy play at nearby Niagara. You play with the boys uh, in playground pickup games. So how did you charm your way onto the court with the boys? Well, uh, Boomer, when I was a young girl, you know, the boys, you just played in the backyard. You had, there was a driveway and, you know, you had two on two, three on three. Uh, or you might go to the playground. And what I decided to do is I got the best basketball. I buy a new ball. And if they wanted to use it, I got to play. <laughs> and actually in the ninth grade, my ninth grade, in the in ninth grade yearbook, my basketball coach that was the boys basketball coach wrote to the best basketball player in the ninth grade. So, you know, until the boys really, um, you know, grew and hit puberty, um, I was, I was very competitive. Um, and I really enjoyed playing with the boys and girls played also, but as I got older, fewer and fewer girls played because there was no support for girls sports then. You know, I'm sure your players, like my own kids, think that, you know, you're from the Stone Age, like me. And <laughs> yeah. I wonder how they would react if you told them spending your summers in a rustic lake cabin in upstate New York with no electricity or running water. What do you think they'd say? Wow. I mean, yeah, they obviously didn't have, they, you couldn't have a cell phone. Uh, you couldn't have a computer. Uh, mm -hmm. you, I mean, it's a, uh, it was, it was a great childhood, I have to say that. Um, I think actually, even though young people today might not think they like it, actually, if they did it, they would like it. I agree with you, as a matter of fact. And in terms of women's sports, the Stone Age would be considered anything before Title IX. And you just kind of referenced that. What is your biggest takeaway of over the half century that Title IX has actually been in effect? And how much further is there still to go and in which realms? You know, Title IX uh, totally changed things for women's sports, um, and and it, it wasn't designed for for sports necessarily for athletics, but uh, it gave a lot of young women opportunities. And when I talked to her at our basketball camp about, you know, I didn't play on I didn't play on a high school team, I didn't have a college scholarship, all the things that I didn't have, like uh, eight year old girls will one will raise her hand and say, well, why not? And I don't know how to answer her question, and so another little eight year old will raise her hand and say, sexism. You know, so it's um, now young people, they expect things to be equal for girls and boys and boys expect it too. Um, but we do have uh, we do have a long way to go um, in terms of the support. And uh, just even right now, I think one of the biggest things that's happening is with the NIL deals with collectives that um, at, at schools, uh, Stanford, uh, you know, there's collectives for uh, men's football, men's basketball, but not for women's sports. And so the money is supporting men's sports and not women's sports. And I think that that's the danger that we're in right now. Um, we do have scholarships. We do have, you know, money for, um, you know, going to games and things that never happened when I was playing. Uh, uniforms, all the things, support from Nike. But uh, I think the the new changing landscape of the multi, multi-million dollar, billion dollar television deals um, is making uh, college sports, taking it into a, a realm that is, in my opinion, unsustainable. You know, after a year at Albany, you ended up in Indiana, mainly because you like basketball and the opportunity that Indiana offered for sure. And of course, Indiana basketball is synonymous with the great Bob Knight. So how did you become one of the general's disciples? This is the craziest story that I have ever read. And, you know, did all those notes that you took at his practices and in classes on coaching influence your coaching style? 
Oh, oh definitely. Uh, I had the opportunity to take Coach Knight's basketball coaching class, which if you took his coaching class, you could also come to practice. I don't think he knew that I was going to come every single day, but <laughs> I did. And I watched practice. I learned a lot from the way he runs practice. And, you know, just uh, it, it was quick. You know, there was a lot being done. Uh, I think contrary to what maybe people think, Coach Knight was a great teacher. And he broke the game down. He explained things very well. Um, he had a vision for how he wanted his team to play, and they were going to play that way. And I think I, I learned a tremendous amount, and I'm very thankful for that opportunity. I also went to graduate school at Ohio State where his coach, Fred Taylor, I took his coaching class. So I felt like I, I was – I was a sponge and I learned a lot from the great uh, basketball minds that, and they shared a lot with me and I'm very thankful. I love that story, coach, I really do. After two years as head coach at Idaho and five years at Ohio State, how did you actually get drawn to the Wild Wild West as you originally hesitant, I read? Why is that? Right. Uh, well, as you said, I kind of fell into basketball coaching backwards. My dad actually forced me to coach my sister's team. Um, and I, I really, you know, I'm really close to my parents and when um, I decided to go into college coaching, I was at Ohio State as a graduate student, and then I got a head job at Idaho. I went back to Ohio State, and I was recruited by Andy Geiger, who was the athletic director at, at Stanford. And I just felt that at the time, you know, there wasn't any professional basketball for women, that, you know, academics were so important for women that that would be a great place to combine academics and athletics. And so uh, Andy Geiger did recruit me to Stanford. Um, I said no the first time, though, because I just didn't really understand Stanford. And so he said, come back. And, you know, I, I did. And I, I met Brooks Johnson, who was the Olympic track coach and the Stanford track coach. And Brooks really talked to me about how, how, um, how, I could, how our team could be successful at Stanford. And he was right. And uh, it's been a, a great 30, 37 years at Stanford. Yeah, it's amazing, 37 years, and you think about your dad forcing you to coach your sister's team, and then I read where your dad said that you were crazy that you would be back home in three months after taking that job at Stanford. He did. My dad played hockey at Dartmouth, and he knew how competitive Stanford was academically, and he just said, Tara, you, 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 you're you not going to be able to get the players, and I said, Dad, we just need three or four a year, and you know, so we have like great players, uh, like All-American Haley Jones or Cameron Brink, or, you know, the players that we have on our team, and past i mean we've had just tremendous uh student athletes come to stanford and it's been um it's really a great fit for me i, I love being at a campus that values academics uh, again not not just because there wasn't professional basketball before but because even if you do play professional basketball at some point as you know you're not going to be playing so you know why not have a great education like a stanford education that's exactly right. Now, you predicted a national championship within five years, and in 1990, you actually delivered. Now, ending the era with Tennessee, Louisiana Tech, and Old Dominion were the dominant powers. Now, in that title game against Auburn, you told your squad to shoot as many three-pointers as they wanted. So why was that your game plan? You know, well, Boomer, uh, the three-point line for college women's basketball and I believe college men's basketball uh, came in in 1988, and we embraced it. Uh, we took our team on a trip to China and we played in China. They would um, in their like in, in China games, they would at, uh, if someone made like five threes, the next three they made would count for four points. So they really encouraged three point shooting. 
And we went over there and one player made 10 threes against us. And I'm like, wow, this is a way we could win because we didn't always have the most biggest physical team. And so incorporating the three-point line to our strategy was uh, the way we won our first and second national championship. Yeah, I was going to say, you won the national uh, crown two years later, and then nearly three decades later, of course, we all remember, you beat Arizona 54-53 to win the 2021 NCAA championship. So what challenges did the pandemic bubble create for you and your team, and did it bring your team closer? You know, the pandemic was a challenge for everyone, and I, I try to keep reminding our team that, in fact, the uh, pandemic was a lot worse for a lot of people. You know, yes, we, we were in a hotel. It was all kinds of you know things we had to do, our travel, eating meals in our rooms. Um, it, there were tremendous sacrifices. But by the time we got to um, San Antonio and we were going to be there for three weeks, I think a lot of teams were, oh, my gosh, three weeks. That felt so long for them. And we're like, three weeks, that's nothing. We had been on the road for nine or ten weeks already. And being together for three weeks was uh, was fun, but um, our team did bond. I think um, you know there were a lot of challenges, uh, really uh, tough challenges during that time. We we tested uh, sometimes nine times a week, uh, six with antigen and three with PCR wow. testing, and it was um, we really we it was a it was really an amazing uh, journey and something that uh, almost feels a little surreal now when I think about it because. It was, uh, what, two years ago now we were going through, you know, testing and staying, you know, staying isolated. And it was very hard on on everyone, I think. And all, all of our mental health, uh, all of our mental health suffered. You know, you know, it was amazing about that 2021 Final Four in San Antonio. You won it, and I'm sure that was great. And that was the most important aspect. But one of your assistant coaches uh, Allie Kirster, I believe her name is, mm -hmm. basically pointed out the difference between the women's weight room and then the NCAA's men's weight room in their bubble. And I'm just, I think that, that she is the hero of that Final Four for putting that inequity out there. And I'm just wondering, did you have any idea that she was going to do that? And when it did happen, how did you react? Well, she asked me if she could put it out. And so I'm glad I said yes. Um, and I said, yes, post it. And, you know, that did start. And then obviously you had a lot of TikToks and all kinds of uh, Instagram and it, it showed the disparity. And it was um, it was so extreme, uh, not just with the weight rooms, but the food, the hotel, the courts uh, and the testing for um, for COVID um, PCR testing for the men and, and antigen testing for the women that uh, it, it created, uh, I think, um, it was a perfect storm. And, you know, I think there have been, there's just been a lot of kind of revisiting. Why is it like that? What is that disparity about? Why are we still 50 years after title nine treating our women athletes one way and our men athletes another way. And it's um, I think it really pointed to the hypocrisy of just the, uh, the NCAA and what they, what they said their mission was, was gender equity. But in fact, they didn't, uh, they didn't, they, they didn't walk the walk. You know, I think of where you came from, the difficulties that you had as a child trying to find a place to play basketball, mm -hmm. to telling your assistant coach, go ahead and post that to social media some 40 years later. Think about that for a second. That is amazing. You know, it, it, it was, um, you know, and I'm, I'm so glad she did. Uh, it was, yeah, it was like 50 years from I graduated from high school. And, you know, I'm like thinking we're going back to that. That's crazy. So. I'm glad she did. And, you know, Allie um, 
and started a, she just started a firestorm and it took, you know, it got a lot of people's attention. Um, you know, a, bi a big part of the success of Title IX are dads. You know, fathers realize they want the best thing for their daughters too. And uh, so we really are thankful for, uh, you know, the moms and dads that have said, hey, we're not gonna serve steak to the boys and hot dogs to the girls. And that's, that's how it was at that tournament. It's amazing that one click changed the basketball world. All right, mm -hmm. we'll be right back to talk about what it was like for Tara Vanderveer to take the finest women's basketball players ever assembled on a year-long gold rush. Welcome back, everyone. Back in 1995, with the backing of the NBA, USA Basketball decided to reverse its declining international fortunes by having a national women's team that played together for 10 months prior to the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. Tara Vanderveer was chosen to guide this women's basketball dream team. And what a dream it was. And coaching Team USA meant that you would have to take a one-year sabbatical from from Stanford, and uh, how'd you feel about that, knowing that you recruited these kids to Stanford, but yet there was a bigger purpose in mind here? Well, I think that it, it came about because uh, in 1992, the U.S. team did not win the gold medal in Barcelona. And then in 1996, having the Olympics in Atlanta, I think, uh, you know, the USA basketball said, we, we want to give our athletes the best chance of winning. And the powers to be decided the best way was to train. Um, this was before there was really professional basketball in the United States for women. Um, and it was um, it was a novel concept and it's never been done that way um, since really. Um, but uh, it was a I think it was a sacrifice for me to give up coaching our team. Um, a lot of people have said, you know, I, when I came back to Stanford, you know, we lost some ground with recruiting and, you know, we struggled for uh, some years. Um, but it was definitely worth it. I love the opportunity to coach the greatest female basketball players in the world. And it was a grind. We, we worked very hard for that gold medal. You know, when you agreed to take the challenge, what did then NBA Commissioner David Stern <laughs> say to you? Well, we had lunch in New York and we were up in his office buildings. And, you know, he, basically he was footing the bill for it. And um, I think he was kind of you know, checking me out. We were just, we were talking about things. And he said, well, Tara, you know, he goes, the only, the only thing I can see that can go wrong with this is if you screw it up. And uh, <laughs> I said, well, don't worry, I'm not, that's not gonna happen. And we, you know, uh, he, he, he was really, he was, it was great to talk to him. And um, he was really invested in the process uh, as other people at the, the NBA were. And um, I think that that, that team and the support of David Stern and the NBA basically was the foundation for the current WNBA and women's basketball as we know it in our country now. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't want to impugn David Stern's patriotism. I know it was all about the red, white, blue for sure, but he obviously had that ulterior motive that year-long tour would be a marketing test to gauge the feasibility of a professional women's basketball league that he had planned to launch. Now, did you guys ever feel any extra pressure? I talked about Dawn Staley about all of this, and you know, mm -hmm. she never felt really a lot of pressure about it, but she knew what was at stake. Yes, I think, you know, I, th I think there, there, the, there was more pressure to win a gold medal. 
um, you know, everywhere we went when we were going through airports and we traveled over 100,000 miles uh, commercial and it was, you know, we, we see people, you know, go win the gold. We went to the White House, you know, win the gold medal from the president. We went to the uh, Supreme Court and we met with, uh, you know, Justices O'Connor and uh, Ruth Ginsburg. And, you know, they said, win the gold medal, you know, so we felt the pressure to win the gold medal more so than anything. Um, and, and I know that everyone on the team, you know, knew that part of, you know, after the gold medal was the the professional um, opportunities. And so it, they were tied together, but the gold medal was the driving force. Now, one of the stops in your four continent 52 game uh, tour was Kyiv, Ukraine. And I'm just wondering, what were your emotions and thoughts when Russia invaded Ukraine back in February 2022? You know, well, we played uh, we played the Ukraine national team uh, at least 10 times during our tour. Uh, we would go to tournaments and honestly, we we got to know them pretty well. And we called them our cousins. And uh, I was uh, you know, I remember being in the beautiful uh, city of Kiev and, you know, we just we walked around the city and it was um, it was very cold. Um, it was a beautiful city. And when this happened, um, it was um, devastating. And uh, I one of the teams that we were playing um, in our NCAA tournament this past year uh, was Georgia Tech. And Nell Fortner was one of my assistants for the national team. And so Nell and I kind of set up um, a donation for every three-point shot. And we had a lot of um, people you know, contribute to it. We raised over $300,000. Uh, for three different charities um, that would, you know, nonprofits that would help uh, uh, Ukraine. And I want to give a, a shout out to um, Charles Barkley. He jumped right on it. Brianna Stewart um, both contributed, you know, $25,000 right off for it. And I ended up um, actually doubling. I paid $20 per three point shot and um, gave uh, $15,000. And so 5000 to each of the three charities, uh, nonprofits. And um, we just, you know, I, I think it, it became personal. Yes, it is. And I know uh, after going 60-0 and 0 on that tour, thinking about that, and of course, that including the Olympics, you're finally on the podium. You won that gold medal that you just talked about. I'm just trying to think, what was your reaction? Was it one of joy or uh, of relief when you're sitting there hearing the national anthem? It was, uh, it was both. I mean, there was, there was, it was some sadness. It was over. Um, I really enjoyed the journey. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, we've got to win the gold medal. We did have to win the gold medal, but um, it was uh, it was really fun. I worked with, uh, it was a lot of work. Um, I had great assistant coaches. Um, I had just, the, as I said, the best players, uh, Lisa Leslie, Katrina McLean, a player that uh, is probably the most incredible player that people don't know about, Teresa Edwards, Dawn Staley, Cheryl Swoops, Ruthie Bolton, Jennifer Azy. I mean, uh, the, the lit, uh, 12 fantastic women that um, just sacrificed a lot to uh, win a gold medal and put women's basketball on the map in the United States. Well, you certainly made all of us proud here at home, I can tell you that. So let me ask you about speaking about the winningest coach of all, Mike Krzyzewski and his, uh, an assistant to Bob Knight, as you know, of course. Uh, you were an undergraduate at Indiana. Did you know him at all back then? I did not. You did not know, but I'm, I'm sure you know him now. I do, yes. <laughs> And there's a reason why I bring up his name, because early next season, you're going to surpass him as the winningest college basketball coach, period. It doesn't matter. I'm just wondering if you've given much thought to what that milestone might be like. 
You know, honestly, Boomer, I, I haven't. Uh, I don't keep track of any numbers. I have no idea, like, how many games or, you know, separate the records. Um, I'm a, I'm an in-the-moment person. I, I love, just want to do a great job today for my team, for my players. And, you know, I think having gone through the pandemic, um, you know, you just, you don't know what, you don't know that there is going to be a season. So, you know, I, I'm just saying, you know, I want to I want to enjoy today and do a great job with my team today and kind of if it happens, it happens and I'll be excited. Um, but uh, I'm not I'm not I'm not putting eggs in that basket. <laughs> All right. Now, over the years at Stanford, you've interacted with numerous famous coaches. Mm -hmm. Now, I just want you to give me a quick top of mind word association for a few of them. All right. OK. All right. First one, Dr. Tom Davis. I was only, he was only at Stanford for a year, but um, flex offense. All right. Uh, number two, Bruce Pearl. He was Tom Davis's assistant, as you know. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, he, he was always, he was always uh, looking for an edge. He was always looking for, uh, he was, he was a great salesman. Yeah, I think of energy when I think of Bruce Pearl. Yes, energy. I agree. <laughs> okay, how about Jim Harbaugh? Love him. Jim is, uh, he is as crazy as it gets, and he's our crazy. I, I absolutely love him. And uh, if I, I have to root for Ohio State, but if they're not playing, I'm rooting for Jim. All righty. And then finally, and uh, unfortunately, this guy took one away from me, the late, great Bill Walsh. Um. Uh, the professor. Uh, I used to sit with him in meetings and just uh, he was always doing he was always doodling. Uh, so he was a doodler, but um, he, he was awesome. I'm, I'm so happy to have uh, been able to be in his presence. Um, True, truly one of the great coaches of our league, the NFL, of yes. course. Now, you've said that people have changed over the years, but circumstances have and you've cited social media as one of those societal game changers. We just talked about one of those instances that you had. What kind of difference has social media made on the way people behave today, you think? Well, you know, I, I mean, I started coaching before computers, before cell phones, uh, social media, I mean, all these things. And I mean, social media, I think is really um, it, it can be really harmful for student athletes and and just students um, and research has shown that uh, their constant um, on a phone uh, not engaging with other people um, is very harmful and so you know we work really hard with our team not to be on phones and you know to engage with their teammates uh, and coaches um, but uh, it, it definitely definitely changed things and we also want our, our players uh, to be aware that if they are on social media, that it's going to be there forever. So to be careful what they post. Sound advice, coach. Sound advice. Our thanks to Tara Vanderveer for joining us today. It's all of you out there on Boomer Size, and I'll see you again real soon right here on Game Time. Coach, that was great. I, I really do appreciate the honesty and, and uh, all the storytelling. Thank you. Thank you, Boomer.